it's so instructive. It's so analytically powerful to read archaeologists and paleoanthropologists and, you know, people who are trying to understand how the transitions from what traditionally was called prehistory to the earliest ancient history took place and, and what those implications meant. So most economists don't get that. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. My guest today is Brad Gregory, the Henkels Family College Professor of History at University of Notre Dame. He's a historian of early modern religion by trade, but also has two master's degrees in philosophy from Catholic University of Leuven, Belgium. His 2011 doorstopper, The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society, might be the most widely reviewed and discussed book ever written by an early modernist. <laughs> Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, so when it occurred to me to write uh, that line in your introduction, I was just going by the line about the most widely discussed book. I was just going by an you know anecdotal impression. I mean, I, I have a whole folder of reviews of that book and responses and responses to responses. But then it occurred to me that there's another book by an early modernist that might rival yours, and that's Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve, <laughs> How the World Became Modern, which also came out in 2011. Yeah. And it was the first ever nonfiction book to win both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. So I searched both on Google Scholar, and which do you think had more hits? I'm sure his does. No, actually, uh, yours has 1,360, his 1,200. Really? His book, although, let us say, it was uh, maybe more well-received than yours, but yours generated far more controversy, and given the culture and the academy we inhabit, I think it means yours is a much better book. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if that's... I, because the wider, the wider culture of controversy has its own let's say, idiosyncrasies and characteristics. So, but I will say um, I'm absolutely no fan of that particular book, uh, The Swerve. In fact, in his, one of the reviews, maybe you, you read it um, of my book, Carlos Ayer uh, from Yale referred to the two in comparison to one another and specifically said, you know, uh, Gregory's book is going to stir all kinds of controversy, whereas Greenblatt's, of course, was celebrated in the skies because his is a basically a screed against the Middle Ages and, and celebration of all the liberatory, wonderful things about uh, Western life since then, without any footnotes and really without any responsible scholarship 
to the, I mean, I felt bad for the Renaissance intellectual historians that really have done the careful work on the retrieval and the dissemination of Epicurean philosophy in uh, the 15th and into the 16th centuries, because uh, there's not, there's virtually none of that in, in the sort But in any case, I, I have nothing that's per- particular or personal against the book. I just think um, it's symptomatic that that book was celebrated because it said the right things. Yeah. Yeah. It confirmed the prejudices of the academy. Carlos Ayer's review is my favorite review of the unintended reformation, by the way. Hmm. Okay, so Luther Bible or King James Version, which is better from a literary standpoint? Oh, uh, gosh, that's a really interesting, they're really quite different. I think probably my own assessment of that is colored by the fact that I'm a, a native English speaker. If I was a native German speaker, I might probably say the Luther Bible, uh, but, I, but I would have to go with the King James Version. When you were studying philosophy in Leuven, what did you think you were doing? I mean, would that young Brad Gregory be surprised by what you're doing now, or was it continuous? Yeah, it's really, that's a great question. You know, I, my, my interests at Leuven itself really shifted over the course of the time that I was there. I mean, I, I started studying philosophy seriously during a junior year abroad there in, in Louisville. They had a one-year BA program in philosophy. I thought, oh, that sounds great. I'll just take 15 courses, pass the exams, and I'll come back to my, my senior year at Utah State uh, with, a, with a European degree in hand. And that's what I did. But my, what really kind of fired my interest most was sort of 20th century metaphysics, um, process philosophy at the time. I got really into Whitehead and Hartshorn and, and stuff. And I when I went back to, to live and well, when I was thinking I was going to come back to live and after going back to Utah State for my senior year and going back, I, I thought I was going to write a master's thesis on basically comparing Aquinas and Hartshorn and showing all the ways or, or Whitehead and Hartshorn and, and Aquinas and showing all the ways in which the 20th century thinkers were so superior. That sort of fell apart my senior year. My interest shifted dramatically and I went back and decided I really was going to Focus more on uh, early modern philosophy in this crucial period of the kind of generative and controversial relationship between questions about theology and and faith and, let's say, revelation and and traditions of interpretation of revelation and Catholic and Protestant Christianity on the one hand, and what was generated out of that, the the new forms of of modern philosophy from Bacon, Descartes, uh, Spinoza, and so forth forward. And I wrote a master's thesis actually on Spinoza's Tractatus Theological Politicus. That's what I did my master's thesis on in context. This is a long answer to your question. There was a time in which I would have thought, say 15 years, 15, 20 years ago, I probably would have thought, oh, I've left that stuff behind. But interestingly, partly in the project that became the Unintended Reformation, and I thought, you know what? I'm really glad I studied all that philosophy. There are crucial pages, uh, particularly in Chapter 2 of uh, Unintended Reformation, um, about contested doctrines regarding answers to the life questions, in which there's no way I would have had the kind of background wherewithal and you know to be able to do what I did without that earlier study of philosophy. So there's a very roundabout way of answering your question. I think I would recognize myself, but it certainly hasn't been a linear path you know, from all those decades ago till now. That makes sense. Yeah. What, what difference does it make to an intellectual historian to have studied in Utah? I went to Utah State originally, and I chose it very deliberately and specifically because I thought I was going to study uh, wildlife science or forestry or something in the 
life sciences and the environmental minded side. So that too has connected up to, as my wife reminded me a couple of years ago, when I started to get, you know, thinking deeply and reading seriously about the Anthropocene Epoch and our current environmental uh, situation. Well, she said, you know what, you're actually coming around full circle to the things that were most important to you when you were a teenager. And there's something actually correct in that. Of course, I chose Utah State and then promptly changed my major to psychology, which had nothing to do with uh, anything environmental, at least not in an obvious way. I was all but uh, of an officially declared music major my sophomore year. I'm a percussionist. And if I'd had a piano background, I probably would have tried to make it as a starving composer, but I didn't. So instead I went to Belgium and studied philosophy for a year and then realizing I didn't know really anything serious about the historical context for the whole history of Western philosophy that I'd absor- uh, absorb, I thought, yeah, might as well major in history and actually learn something about the you know political, economic, social context. So now, now you know my whole um, early intellectual and undergraduate trajectory. So out there, in terms of modern history, there's not much there. Uh, but in terms of pre-conquest history of human habitation, it's extremely rich. And in terms of Mormon historiography, the landscape is just saturated with sacred history. Did you experience any of those aspects of Utah's history while you were there? Excellent questions. The the pre-conquest stuff, not at all. I mean, I was aware of it, but I wasn't like, oh, let's go see that archaeological site. That wasn't on my radar screen at all at the time. But Utah, though, the experience of being a Catholic outsider, a Midwestern Catholic outsider in this religious subculture, that had an enormous impact on me. I was never, I mean, I never had felt myself as kind of a, you know, such so just so culturally alien. I mean, it was, it was more of a culture shock to go from Illinois to Utah than it was to go from Illinois to Belgium. The, I think the, the principle, I didn't realize this really it dawned on me years later when I was uh, a graduate student at Princeton, but it was crucially formative for me, particularly because what, what started to coalesce was, was a, a kind of inchoate awareness that then I was able later with much more reading and reflection and, and, you know, hopefully intellectual sophistication to articulate that there's a fundamental difference. I mean, a categorical difference between trying to understand religious people in terms that they themselves would recognize and explaining the categories and experiences of those religious people in terms that they would utterly repudiate. When I was growing up, social was the adjective used to describe something having to do with larger society. Um, in middle school, I took social studies. Uh, there's social science, social class, social history. It wasn't a modifier that undergrads commonly used either. And now people rarely use social in this sense. And societal has become perhaps the more common modifier that, and, and the most common modifier that my undergrads use in, in any context societal impact, societal issues, societal structures. What's what's going on here? I like I, I actually think that is a significant distinction and, a, and a, a useful one. I try to use it myself. If I'm if I'm referring self-consciously, deliberately to the sort of the, the overarching shape and character of social institutions, the dominant ethos and so forth, I, I will try to use societal. Social, it seems to me, has a, a it, it can mean that. It, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, in the past, it has often meant that. But I, I try to use it when I'm, for example, the interaction among people in a family, those are social interactions. The interactions among friends are social interactions. I would not call those societal interactions, right? They're not of the whole. I guess societal is the social of the whole or whatever the big designation is. Social, usually I try to use it with a, a more um, restrictive 
you know, delimitation. Most of us in the humanities these days have to assume that even our best students didn't get even the most basic disciplinary education required for the <laughs> level of learning that they're actually capable of in a given discipline. So one example is oh. that, you know, very sharp students come into my English classes, even ones who want to study literature, and they don't know what a genre is. And so yeah. they call everything a novel, even Beowulf. Yes. Yes. Which they've read in high school. Most of them have read it. Yes. Um, and so I have to teach them first what a genre is before I teach them about in particular genres. And I imagine that the remediation required in the history classroom is even more drastic. How, how do you handle this? And, and what would you want your students, what kind of disciplinary formation would you want them to be getting in high school so that you could kind of just hit the ground running in a, in a college classroom? Gosh, isn't this like, this is like, um, you know, share your fantasies about the, <laughs> the, what, if only we could, you know, be the czars of, of uh, you know, an, an efficacious educational system in our country. I absolutely get what you're saying. I, it, there's no doubt about it. It's, I mean, the, the desert that is most primary and secondary school, you know, history instruction in this, this country is arid indeed. What I would what I would like to see is that you know uh, a sort of age appropriate introduction to just things as basic as you know chronology, you know things that happen before other things influence the things that come after, but not always and not all in the same ways. I mean, I think there's a way to to make that clear to an eight year old that's different from the way you make it to a thirteen year old that's different than the way you make it to a seventeen year old, and increasing substance and content to that as you know kids move along so that by the time they get to the their their junior or senior year in high school they understand that you know things didn't happen to have to happen the way that they did but they did happen in a certain way the ways in which they have happened have had consequences and we are living in a world that it is literally impossible and i mean this in the strongest sense literally impossible to understand in meaningful ways if we don't understand that we're temporal beings exist in time and that the course of the past has shaped the present. If, if students would come just with that kind of basic awareness in a sense that, you know what, medieval is between ancient and modern. And, you know, if, if I say the early Middle Ages, you know, I'm not talking about the 15th century, right? If they would come in just with that, that kind of basic knowledge, then you wouldn't face, as I'm sure you do in your, in your own ways in a literature classroom, a sense that some students come in absolutely ready for all that, and they are, their sponge is ready to soak up a serious kind of, of, of discourse and, and, and further learning. Whereas others, you have to say, well, no, the, ancient, the Greeks that were really influential came before the Romans, right? Yeah, it's, it's not as much fun to trouble periodization if they don't have the periodization to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like they don't they, they can't understand what's at yeah, stake, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So uh, and look, you talked previously about the implicit metaphysics of history, of the history discipline. And so how do you teach undergrads about the metaphysics of history? I mean, for example, do you do you discuss final causes or teleology in history class? I do not it depends, I think, on the subject matter and the specific issues that you're treating within history. I'm very careful when I'm when I'm talking about religious traditions and religious people. I'm, I do make a, a, a point to say to students, although it's widely assumed among many scholars that, of course, you know, none of these things can be true. That's actually not the case. And I probably have a little digression about that. I try to do a sort of crash course orientation for my I teach a two semester honors humanity seminar, for example, a very big at, at Notre Dame. I've taught it for many times. 
at the very beginning of the, the semester, I we spend a couple class periods and I, it's kind of a crash orientation. Like nobody's going to tell you this, but you need you really should understand these things. The difference between a normative right statement and a descriptive one. Nobody's going to talk about that, but it's absolutely crucial. We read this. You, you may know this book, Science and the Good. Do you know this? No, I don't. Co-written book by uh, James Davison Hunter and uh, a co-author. I, I should know it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good you, you with your interest you would you would find this really illuminate it's the the um the subtitle is oh gosh um the tragic quest for the foundations of morality and it's basically about the the, the enlightenment post-enlightenment attempts you know hey the scientists can do all this stuff wouldn't it be great if on the scientific basis we could resolve all of these right contentious issues about morality scientifically and it's about the the aims to do that you know through influences of Darwinism and, and, and more recently things like, you know, neural image imaging and all this kind of stuff. It's like, Oh, when we talk about this issue, this part of the brain lights up, et cetera. It's a really, really good book. I read that with students before we go to Plato and Aristotle, because I want them to understand, you know, you're going to learn a lot of stuff in your science classes. Don't ever make the conceptual error of thinking that biochemistry or ecology or particle physics is somehow going to be able to tell us whether you know, it's uh, legitimate to uh, divorce somebody or, you know, to pursue a, a policy of uh, redistribution of wealth or anything else. That's never going to happen. These are categorically different things. The underlying misstep, I wrote about this in the Unintended Reformation, is to take the perfectly proper methodological naturalism of the natural sciences. I mean, that's the way in which one does natural sciences. You don't, you know, sort of get an anomalous experiment and say, well, ah, that must have been God's intervention because we can't make sense of it otherwise. I mean, once upon a time, people did reason that way. We don't do that. And the reason, and we don't, the fact that we don't do it is a large explanation for why the natural sciences have been as successful as they are. It's another thing altogether to say, therefore, metaphysical naturalism is true, you know, to move from the methodological to the, to the, to the affirmative metaphysical claim. But because the natural sciences, of course, are so powerful, Look at all the stuff they can do. I mean, the technology we're using right now for this interview, right? Wouldn't be possible without the discoveries and the application of natural sciences. Social sciences want to be just like them. Economists want to be like physicists, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the humanities uh, really are since pulled along in the wake of that um, to a large extent. Yeah, one of your most famous essays, in fact, the way I first encountered your scholarship was this 2008 article uh, about the the implicit metaphysics of history and of the discipline. Right. And how would you, if, I, I mean, I know you're not an economist, you're not an expert, but, but if you were to describe the implicit meta, metaphysics of economics, w- would, it, would it be any different? And what difference should it make to have a Christian metaphysics and then to do economics? I think that's a complicated question, partly because it's, I think it's less the, it's less the metaphysics of, academic economics than it is the overwhelming assumption of consequentialist utilitarian ethical framework within uh, economics, as well as, I think, uh, just a huge problem is the deliberate collapsing of any sort of substantive distinction between needs and wants into demand in all, virtually all mainstream economic modeling. It doesn't matter whether you know, you're talking about people, uh, as far as your, your economic models are concerned, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about people getting basic nutrition or whether they're buying a third vacation home. I mean, 
this is a, you know, these, these, that, you know, that's individual preference and so forth. So it doesn't matter. But those, those, that distinction is absolutely critical, I think, to not only a fair minded reading of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament, but also to understanding the history of, of Christianity. And I would say, you know, the, the way in which religious ethics in most, if not all, the world's religious traditions are understood. Human beings in those traditions are understood to have a moral imperative to care about and to the extent that they are able to provide for the most basic needs to prevent a fellow human being, for example, from starving or going homeless over against the fact that they might happen to want some nice new clothes or go on a vacation or anything else. And if you have a whole discipline that basically brackets that entire issue, that's a huge problem. I, I actually... Again, there are exceptions. I was just recently interviewed, and there was an episode of on Steve Levitt's I saw that. Pod, yeah, podcast. So I was glad that, to know that at least I'm somebody that Steve mostly admires. There are exceptions among economists, but most economists are, I think, conceptually the narrowest and the most confined uh, among social scientists in the academy. I think anthropologists are at the other end, generally speaking, because they study a wide range of different sorts of people. Economists assume human nature is simply what has been constructed, reinforced endlessly in the modern post-Adam Smith, post-capitalist consumerist world. And they take this as, as just that, of course, all human beings want to maximize their self-interest. And of course, more is better. And of course, they want to get it at the lowest price possible. And what else could there be? The fact that most human beings who've ever existed through the vast majority of our species wouldn't have even known what to make of these categories or aspirations. It's neither here nor there to them. So this is one of the reasons going back to the, you know, the issue about deep history that I think is so, it's so instructive. It's so analytically powerful to read archaeologists and paleoanthropologists and, you know, people who are trying to understand how the transitions from what traditionally was called prehistory to the earliest ancient history took place and and what those implications meant. So most economists don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to come back to those issues um, a little bit later. But your first book was on martyrs and uh, many of them Anabaptist martyrs uh, of the Reformation. To what extent would you say your own theology has been formed by Anabaptism? Yeah. You know, I've not, not in an explicit way, I don't think. I mean, I have reflected on this to some extent. And, um, you know, there are some interpretations of, of Reformation Anabaptism that see it as sociologically analogous in its separatism to traditions of Catholic and Orthodox, for that matter, to monasticism. It's sort of family-based, right, non-celibate uh, uh, expressions of, of Christianity, but very... To, the, to a large extent, at least in most of its earliest forms, uh, deliberately sort of world-denying, austere, not seeking, you know, um, to, to acquire more and more and so forth. And so, I mean, there are analogies that way. I would say, you know, more my, my outlook is more, more specifically shaped, whatever the resemblances to certain aspects of Anabaptism, it's more explicitly shaped by the sort of asceticism of the saints in uh, in the Western tradition, I mean, as as the ones to me 
that seem most nearly to uh, have actually s- have sought to live out and to varying various extents have lived out the radicalism of um, you know what we see in the New Testament. I'm like I mean I'm, I'm like Dorothy Day except not really like her because I don't actually do what she did. She really was <laughs> saintly, but I admire her enormously. Right. You know that right. kind of self-sacrificial service on behalf of others. That to me is is the heart of what it's about, and it's also the core of what we see almost virtually non-existent in in among modern Christians. Right. Well, I mean, it also strikes me though that that another similarity to Anabaptism is your historiography. The unintended Reformation, you know, t- talked about how developments in Christianity led to present day uh, formations like secularization that are uh, inimical to Christianity. And it seems from what I've heard and, and read of the current project that you're working on right now, that it could be titled the unintended Christianity, because you kind of, you take that, <laughs> you take that idea that Christianity is its own worst enemy back to, you know, almost the very beginning. Yeah. And, and that's a, and that's an Anabaptist historiography, you know, that, that, yes. You know, at, at the very latest, uh, with Constantine, That's right. the entire church has betrayed right. its the essence of the gospel, and maybe even earlier. I get, yes, I see what you're what you're um, driving at now. Yeah, that's no, that's I think that's right to a very large extent. the The degree to which the established Christian churches in the West, in the Eastern world, the Protestant churches after the after the 16th century, and so forth, have Taking it as a a sort of sine qua non of sustainability and of efficacity, the possibility, right, of sort of following Christ in the world, have taken it as a kind of necessary presupposition that, of course, you have to accommodate yourself to, accept, and basically abide by structures of domination, coercion, control, violence, you know, what is that? What is that chalked up to, right? We live in a fallen world. What can you do? What We live in a fallen world. Always as the, the sort of explanation for why something more isn't, uh, isn't possible or indeed to pursue it in a kind of proactive way would be, right, anti-Christian. You know, you're, you're, you're going against the, you know, God's established order. But I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think, for example, in the 17th, 18th, or 19th centuries, contrary to what many Christians argued, most Christians argued, I don't think institutionalized slavery was part of God's uh, established order any more than I think that, you know, the de facto slaves who work for virtually nothing in Southeast Asia or China or certain African countries or Mexico to make the stuff that we buy today is part of God's desired order. I think it's a massive mess of exploitation that is used by Christians to justify their affluence on the backs of other people. And I think it's been that way basically from the start. So I've been giving you a, a lot of fast-paced questions, but... Yeah, I'm sorry for going on so long. No, but now it's now it's time for uh, <laughs> me to go me to go on for a while. I have a kind of essay question that I oh, felt okay. like I had to that I had to write out because it's a little complex. So uh, in your contribution to the Theological Genealogies of Modernity Conference that happened last summer, and, and now you've revised that for an article that's coming out in the journal Modern Theology. You argue that Christianity has, from the very nearly, from the, nearly from the beginning, rationalized avarice, which you were just discussing, 
And this has led to climate crisis to really, you know, compress the narrative <laughs> and the acceleration of uh, the acceleration of economic modernization since World War II has moved us from the period that geologists call the Holocene. That's the period defined by the retreat of the last major ice age about 11,000 years ago into the Anthropocene, which is defined as the first epoch in history in which humans are the major factor in global ecology. And we're headed toward some kind of mass extinction. If you accept this picture, then you probably entertain the thought, what if we had just stayed in the Holocene? And the liberal democratic response to that is usually the Holocene was miserable for humans. Life was nasty, brutish, and short. Scarcity was the defining feature of life. And only industrial modernity could break us out of that. The present is far better than the past. The future is bright because technological progress always manages to get us out of whatever jam it gets us into in the near term. But that answer doesn't make as much sense if the Holocene was actually characterized by abundance. And that's the picture that emerges from David Graeber and yeah. David Wengrow's The Dawn of Everything, A New History right. of Humanity, which has just been blowing my mind. <laughs> and so, for example, compared uh, to the cycles of famine in medieval European agricultural society, pre-contact North American peoples lived far more stable lives. And among the Wendat people of what yeah. would be modern-day Quebec, for example, they lived lives of simple abundance and social equality despite not having the concept of, of private property. So here was a society that could appreciate the New Testament approach to economics as you characterize it. Yep. Instead, they got French Jesuits justifying yep. the avaricious behavior exactly. of, of, of their host. But you characterize New Testament economics as radically ascetic. And you write, because no one needs many possessions in order to practice the virtues in a community whose mem members demonstrate their love for one another through their actions, there is enough for everyone. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, and a socio-environmental corollary of ascetic self-denial is Holocenic sustainability. But what stands out to me here is that the Wendat did not need ascetic self-denial to achieve sustainability. So it seems to me that this should be your big takeaway from Graeber and Wenbro, that the Christian idea of ascetic poverty isn't necessary for us to remain in the Holocene, and, and that the Christian idea that ascetic simplicity is for the few, the monastics, the saints, and the rest of us living the mixed life have to just, you know, manage as we can, that's a false dichotomy. And, and so there actually is a way to sustainably live in the Christian middle class according to this uh, according to the new anthropology of prehistoric peoples. Why isn't that a, a, a move that you make? It, the, I mean, to really develop this right properly, I mean, the, the, the essay that I wrote is in itself is super compressed, not as compressed as your one line <laughs> compression of it before, but it's also super compressed. Now the I'm, I'm, the the first thing I wanted that I wanted to do right in in the article is to show just how starkly juxtaposed the dominant modern acquisitive ideology in which Christians are full participants by and large just like non Christians are in the Western world in any case how starkly that contrasts with many very explicit directives, warnings, and so forth in the New Testament. It's true that even um, 
community of goods that's described in the the two chapters of Acts, Acts of the Apostles 2 and 4, if read strictly, right, is not a manifestation of the renunciation of all possessions, right? It's a distribution of all the things that are owned by the believers uh, so that each, right, has uh, his needs taken care of, which is what you're describing. I think that's quite plausible. I mean, whatever it might have been, or how that actually might have expressed itself is a very interesting, it's a huge, in the sense of we have to think away and, and reimagine a huge swath of, I would say, the last at least 1,700 years of historical development to try to imagine it. But I do think it, Holocenic sustainability might have assumed any number of different forms if what you're describing had been sustained. Now, I don't at all think that one of the implications of, of it, and I, and I don't want to misstate or mischaracterize what you just said, but I don't at all think that it's remotely plausible, given the forces of advertising, marketing, acquisitiveness, consumerist capitalism, the way that it exists in the world today, that even if you made a cogent, compelling, and an even beautiful case for a kind of widespread Christian self-denial sufficient to move the needle on the kind of ecologically disastrous things that we're doing to the planet. I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining it. I don't want to be a, a, you know, a Christian devoid of the virtue of hope. I mean, I think that I have an obligation to be hopeful, although I do perhaps casuistically keep open the form that hope assumes. But I think our path depend our global path dependency on the kinds of the kinds of profit minded, extractive, wealth generating, possession minded form of human existence that is not only characteristic of the West now, of course, but is pervasive in China. It's it, it's everywhere. So anyway, I'm I'm, I'm kind of unfolding a yeah. few of, of initial right. kind of responses to to what you propose, but I but I get your I, I take your point and I agree with it that it's not the point is not how little how literally little can you live with, it is, I think a statement about you need much less than you think you do in order to live a fulfilling human life and you know what what the particular form that Wendat or other indigenous peoples, right, the, the particular forms that that took, I don't think it's going to look too much like the material surroundings of however we define a middle-class uh, American or, or Western existence today. It was a lot sparer than that, but it means they did a lot of feasting. It means they had joyous communal celebrations. And I think that's the kind of thing that we can, we can interpret and understand what Jesus is talking about in the kinds of, you know, communities and, and uh, groups of his followers that he envisions. The most important things in life is not how much more can you get and can you upgrade all the stuff that you have. It is what kind of relationships do you build with the people that you have and what kind of a shared life do you have together? It, it seems to me that in, in these big debates, uh, big picture debates about the Anthropocene, they're one of the biggest divides. So um, among those who who accept this basic picture. Uh, they accept um, Graeber and Wengro's um, account of uh, prehistoric societies. 
the the big divide is going to be possibility. Yeah. What uh, what kind to what extent is it possible for humans to change and 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 to do something differently? And David uh, Graeber and Wengro are <laughs> almost. Uh, just laughably optimistic about about this this possibility, as you point out in your your review of them, and I think Christians in general are far more sober about the prospects of of change. But it does seem like there was there was there were times in history when humans collectively decided not to pursue greater stratification, mm-hmm. a greater power. So actually, I so I was just accidentally reading Michael Mann's The Sources of Social mm-hmm. Power alongside uh, The Dawn mm-hmm. of Everything. And what I realized is that in 1986, he made a lot of mm-hmm. the same arguments that they're making uh, against an evolutionary exactly. model of human civilization. And what's astounding about that is that their argument is based on discoveries in the last 20 years. He didn't even have the data that they have. It, it's, it's remarkable. But, but he, says, he says, in fact, um, human beings devoted a considerable part of their cultural and organizational capacities to ensure that further evolution did not occur. Yes. They seem not to have wanted to increase their collective powers because of the distributive powers involved. Exactly. Agriculture, for example, is a good example, and with Graeber and Wengrow take up as well. Yeah, and 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 they would they could go back and forth. Exactly. I mean, there there could be an agricultural revolution, and then it could return. Yeah, and for it, thousands of years. <laughs> right, right. So, and 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 Graeber and Wengro want to draw from this the conclusion that we could mm. do it again. Um, and, I just, and I and I and I think and I think you're saying just, that that the fact of the Anthropocene makes it so that there's no going back. Where does that leave Christian hope? And it's, you know. it's a, I mean, it's absolutely it's it's an obvious question. That doesn't mean it's not a great question, which it is. You know, and I this is something I, to be honest with you, I struggle with um, in a serious way. You know, is is hope ultimately and necessarily therefore only to be right? As was swath for a wide range of different Christians over a very long period of time to be understood as entirely eschatological. That is right. We, we do hope for because this is a veil of tears, because human beings are sinful and constantly fall back into their same habits that are destructive to themselves and others, etc. Our, our hope is our hope is for the hereafter. It is for, you know, a heavenly reward that, you know, will wipe away every tear. I mean, that has been and remains still for many Christians a uh, I would say, I mean, throughout much of, of, of the history of Christianity, that has been, I think, the predominant understanding. I think it has been, in, very, in quite significant ways, probably ways that it's difficult for us to appreciate fully, because of the narrative we were talking about earlier, the medieval versus modern. Look at how, you know, of course things are better now than they were then. I mean, you know, duh. The extent to which we do live materially, and more satisfying lives, and we're, we, we live longer, we live healthier, we have all kinds of opportunities that people centuries are going to, all that is absolutely true. I think, though, that that means that our understanding of hope and also the way in which we understand divine providence has been deeply imprinted by that reality, such that it's almost inconceivable to Christians, at least in a preliminary way, to imagine that this, what has been construed as a sort of tightly fitting double helix 
of right material progress, human opportunity, individual self-determination, rise of democracy, etc. All the things that are folded into the macro narrative that, that dominant minority. And an understanding of, of course, God is behind the process of history. How, how could he not be? Those two things, right, moving in one direction over centuries, it's presumed. The idea that now that might be fundamentally mistaken is almost unimaginable, at least initially, I think, to many Christians. And, and so that's, that's my kind of initial way of thinking about it. But, and I, I, don't get me wrong, I mean, I said this in the, in the essay too, I mean, I, I would love it if we find technological ways out of this. I, you know, like I said, I, you know, I love the world's wildlife, including other human beings. And uh, let's, let's hope that we can do it. But to read seriously in this literature, I mean, it, it doesn't, it really doesn't look good. And to, to look at what happened at Glasgow late last year, it doesn't look promising. You know, let's come back next year and maybe we'll actually do something. That's, we don't have time to do that. Just, just as an aside, a little Bayesian thought experiment. If it turns out 300 years from now that, that the ice caps are, are actually back to where they are, we've got yep. um, the, the ocean levels are about the same as now, what, what would have been the, the assumption most likely to have been, been wrong uh, in, in this? I think it would have been that a certain hitherto non-existent and or unforeseen uh, a series of technological innovations, in fact, were made, scaled, and implemented in ways that people in the early 21st century could not have foreseen. That I, th I think that's the most likely. I, for, I, I don't think, for example, it will be, oh, because starting in the late 21st century, people reduced their consumption by 90%. Yeah. I, I really doubt that. What, what do you think of... Uh... Paul Kingsnorth's prognosis that that there's there's no possibility that we are going to avert major uh, climate crisis, and there, therefore we kind of just have to begin already living in the uh, the small sustainable communities that are the only kinds of things that are going to be left after that crisis. I you know there I think there's there's actually um, that to me is one among any number of rational responses to where we find ourselves today. I gave a talk in the, in the fall, <laughs> which, you know, it was at a, a, a small Christian college. It was about kind of higher education and Christianity and, and, and the future. And, you know, one of the things I, I speculated on there is that I think the later 21st century might actually see a, a major Christian revival. And the reason I think that might happen is because the Christian tradition, you know this, because you, you work in the late Middle Ages has such an incredibly rich and uh, fertile and multivalent um, theology of suffering. So uh, <laughs> in other words, yeah. because we, yeah. right, we, we got the tools to deal with that, right? We've got a suffering savior, the, the whole, you know, devotion to Christ's suffering and, and so forth in the late Middle Ages and so forth could very well come back because the chances of there being massive and horrific human suffering on a scale that's very difficult for us to, to contemplate we're talking the possibility of billions of climate refugees by the late 21st century that will make what's going on now look like child's play. And once you have flows of movement of people like that, leave aside all the other, you know, agricultural and climatological and other problems and so forth. I mean, geopolitical stability is out the window. 
in anything like the normal. So anyway, I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, to me, all of that is speculative. I, I, I'm not a, you know, kind of drawn toward specific future scenarioizing, if that's a word. Um, it could take a lot of different forms. It seems absolutely clear and justified, though, therefore, in the present, whatever the future holds, the present, the, the amount of evidence, the way in which it all kind of overwhelmingly goes in one direction, the, the range of the different models that are done and so forth. I mean, none of it looks good. And to that, to that extent, it seems to me, Christians, like other people too, but Christians with a particular valence, have a duty to look for, try to understand the truth, even when it's not pleasant. I mean, I don't like any of this. <laughs> and I'm not a, people who know me well, you know, or I mean, they would, I, people have talked, oh, Brad, you're so upbeat and, you know, you have a sunny disposition and all this kind of thing. I said, yeah, but that, that's neither here nor there for this. It doesn't matter what your outlook on life is or so forth. It only matters whether you're aware of the evidence and what does it show? I mean, it's, it's brutal. And, you know, so I'm, what can I, I, I'm, I'm self-aware enough to know that I individually can do nothing about that. But what I can do is from, you know, my, my opportunities, my training, my outlook on life and so forth, I'm going to try to do my best, try to understand this in a serious, long-term, convincing way that at least tries to understand our current predicament and how we, and how we got into it. And I don't think that that can be understood, A, apart from the Western world because of its disproportionate influence since the 15th century and creating the global institutions, practices, assumptions, and so forth that, that dominate our world today. And secondly, because Christianity was the overwhelmingly dominant religious tradition within that you know, geographical focus, it has to be a story about Christianity. And because there's such a discrepancy between what the New Testament says and what most Christians have done, that has to be part of the explanation. So to turn to the deep history aspect of your current project, you know, at some point in my education, I learned that humans had been around for 40,000 years. Yeah. And then, but in the last 20 years, that's been pushed back to 100,000 years. Recent evidence might even put Homo sapiens at uh, 400,000 years. What, what difference does that make to our understanding of God's election of the people of Israel? Incredibly, super complicated question, I think. And one that I'm, how can I put it? <laughs> I haven't worked out what I think about that, what I think about that yet. I do think there is much more need for theologians who are sort of like, again, not all, they're always exceptions, but generally speaking, historians are, sorry, theologians are sort of like economists in their narrowness. And that, and that <laughs> they are, it's like, oh no, I, you know, I don't do the Pauline letters at all. I only work on, you know, the synoptic gospel. It's like, what, what are you, what are you even doing? I mean, theology, uh, it's easy for me to say, I'm not a theologian. Okay. And, but the point is theology itself has for a very long time, overwhelmingly been a specialist discipline like any other. And that can't be what the intellectual calling of theology must be if it's actually to be the overarching discipline that at least in the Middle Ages, at least theoretically, right, could command its place as queen of the sciences. And if that's the case, then as I, you probably saw, I slyly slipped in a sentence about theologians, if they're to do their duty and, you know, be true to the greatest calling and the, and the, and the widest compass of their own discipline. 
they have to try to understand God in relation to all things. Now, God in relation to all things implies God in relationship to any everything that the natural sciences have disclosed about God's creation. Now, you can't know all of that. I mean, not in a technical, superficial, or, or, or you know, comprehensive way. But way more historic, way more theologians should know more about you know really what cosmological theories of the universe are. It, those do bear on our understanding about how God you know works through the material created contingent reality. And so too for the evolution of life on Earth. So too for the emergence of hominins and hominids. And, and so too for the complicated ways in which I mean you know even even the fact that you know as recently as. 40 or maybe even 35,000 years. Homo sapiens, you know, our ancestors shared this planet with Neanderthals and Denisovans, who were also members of the genus Homo. And we know from DNA of it, it's we interbred with them. Most of us for, with some Northern European, you know, of Northern European background have, you know, one to 2%, some as many as three or three and a half or 4% Neanderthal DNA in us. Some Southeast Asian people have even a higher percentage of DNA of Denisovan. Now, what does this all mean for theologizing and for the ways in which, for example, the, the emergence of the ancient Israelites and, you know, whether there even was a united kingdom, right, between the North and the South, the 10th and the 9th century BC, or to what extent was that, you know, crafted later on during Hezekiah's or Josiah's? Right, uh, consolidation, or indeed during the Babylonian captivity, or when they returned and were, you know, part of the province under Persian rule, or so forth. I don't know, but I do know in principle that theologians should think about this stuff because it, it's just it's either you're a science and 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 kind of theology guy, and you're doing, hey, how does modern physics relate to theologies of creation, or it's oh, you know, I'm I'm working on. You know, I'm working on the way in which the book of Psalms was put together. And, you know, I have no idea about, you know, like how long our species has been around or whatever. I mean, it's just it's it's yeah. it's just it's a symptom of the fragmentation of modern knowledge. And it's tragic. Yeah, it's tragic. I, d- I did want to note that I have for a while loved to speculate about humanity continuing for another 400,000 years and what what Christianity would look like in that context. And and if. If judge, you know, if the end of the world were four hundred thousand years from now, it would put the advent of Christ at a, at a, a nicely symmetrical, <laughs> well, uh, based on what we currently know. But I, so one, one final question that I think a lot of people would like to hear the answer to. So James Simpson put this well when reading the Unintended Reformation. He says there are there are exceptionally useful tracks through entire libraries of books compacted in his notes. And that's that's an experience I also have. And I'm just wondering, how do you do that? I mean, what are the nuts and bolts? <laughs> what time of day do you read? How do you take notes? Do you, do you, do you read as you write? Are there two distinct stages? Uh, no, I, I'm only laughing because my, you know, my, <laughs> and I think it's, well, uh, Anyway, I, so many thoughts on that particular. I've been asked this before. Let me. I, how, I, I'm going to try to give a simple, a simplified answer. I, I started my career in a much more conventional, normal way. You go, you read sources, you take notes of them, right? And then when it comes time to write, you consolidate, you figure out how you how you're going to arrange it and so forth. That's basically how I wrote my dissertation, and it's and my dissertation is was it's made I hope more readable in Salvation at Stake, but the structure of the book, everything else was largely the same. Unintended Reformation wasn't like that. I was working on a much more, and, and working, I, I'll say, sort of um, 
uninspiredly and increasingly in a frustrated way on a much more conventional narrative of sort of Reformation era Christianity that would would have started around would have been more, more something more like Carlos Ayer's right probably not that mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. but but his book Reformations you know start 1450 or late late 15th century and go up basically the end of the Thirty Years War English uh, English Restoration let's say and I just you know. Oh, you know, some other big books came out and how different will mine be? And then then it always seems to me I I can't stand it when somebody does a kind of like contrived move just to make their, you know, book different from somebody else's, even though they very well know that if they were honest with themselves, the evidence would show that their, you know, cast aside version would have been more or less just like, you know, so and so. So I I just wasn't it wasn't going. I unintended reformation. There are actually very few. There, there's, there's all the all the actual notes per se that I took for unintended reformation will fit in one file folder. Wow. I I did not, and the, you know this is kind of the way that I I, I work now. I mean, I, you have to know something to put something down. I, I knew something, right? I did a really just like super fast knowing as each each sentence i'm writing this is not adequate this will not last anyway but i just kind of let it come out i drafted the th- first three chapters of unintended reformation like that in about two and a half months and i just because i you know i could see i could see what it is that i wanted to do and i wanted to kind of you know convince myself to see whether or not this would work and then i sent that I mean, it, it was it wasn't totally embarrassing. It, it was coherent. It made sense. They were complete sentences and so forth. But I knew much of it was in, inadequate. There weren't any there, for notes. I would just have like you know an author's name and a and a title and you know check such and such because I knew it was there, but I wasn't going to take the time right to deter myself from just the the flow. And I sent it to and I'm going to let the the three super eminent scholars that I knew for different periods, and so I'm going to let them remain anonymous. But I sent it to them and I said, "Is this promising or is this?" stupid or ill-conceived and they all said oh you should this is this is really good this is really interesting it's promising i see what you're doing and so i i made i resolved it that's what i'm going to do and i originally conceived unintended reformation as 12 12 chapters rather than six and i had it i had an outline about an 80 page kind of like three to four five pages of like a, a just a kind of shell narrative of each of the 12 chapters. And I started working on chapter one before I wrote the three that I was telling you about. And it was like 70 or 80 pages long. And I wasn't even done with it. I thought, this, this is not going to go. It's going to be too long. I said, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to choose the six chapters that I think are likely to have the greatest explanatory power for the arc that I want to, the argument I want to make. And I'm going to focus on those and get this, I'm going to write like a 200 page book and I'm just going to put, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to make it really, really small and really kind of sketchy. I'm just going to get it out there. Right. And just let people react to it. And then I'll write the big 12 chapter version. Well, long story short, those six, you know, chapters grew because I just, I didn't think I could sustain. And so hence some of the long, you know, kind of uh, expository notes that Simpson was referring to and so forth, just to show, you know, the learning and the thought that went behind certain moves that I made and so forth. But now it's, it's even more that way because of course I'm way out of my ordinary field. I mean, I've, I've almost everything I've written over the last year plus has been in the, the ancient um, world. I mean, I've written almost nothing uh, up beyond the early Roman empire over the last year. And that has necessitated a massive amount of reading. 
But basically what I do is I, I try to work. I write when I, when I don't have other obligations, I, I get up and I, and I work. My, my most productive hours are early in the morning till midday. No question. I'm getting older. So I think that's part of it too. I try to get something down, something down. Uh, I have to have at least a scheme, but I would, I'm going to write, you know, something very basic, even if I know it's wrong and I'm going to have to read lots of other things in their qualify. And mm-hmm. then I come back mm-hmm. and I just, and I just, I, Oh, that won't work at all. Get rid of it completely. Mm-hmm. I started this, I started writing about the ancient world. I kid you not. I bought like five or six of those Oxford, very short introductions to like the ancient Near East and ancient Assyria and, you know, the early Greeks or whatever the case may be. And I just, I read those. And then I said to myself, okay, if you only had this, if you could only draw on what you know from this, this, what would you say? And I just started to write something Hmm. that combined with two, two other inspirations. One was James Scott's fantastic book against the grain, uh, a deep history of the earliest States, which was a just a mind-blowing book to me. I, I love that book. And the other was rereading Marshall Solon's classic essay, huh. the, the, the Stone Age Economics, or, the, or in Stone Age Economics, the original affluent society, Yeah, yeah. which is a great essay. I mean, it's wrong in, in the specifics, but its impulse and its insight are keen. And what he says in there, there are two ways, right, that, that affluence can be fulfilled. One is by acquiring much, and the other is by desiring little. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is juxtapose that to somebody who knows the New Testament and Christianity well. And then what Jesus looks like is a kind of radical intervention at the string of a long series of first millennium BC empires, the most powerful of which the Roman Empire is in an unprecedented way crushing millions of human lives in what is a full-blown, big-time slave society, especially on the Italian peninsula, and to which Judea has been subjugated, you know, for 60, 50 or 60 years before Jesus is born. And this particular, as I'm calling it, at least in a working way now, this peculiar anarchism of the kingdom of God, that is not, it's not a new regime that is going to be more powerful than the others. It's going to be a regime that envisions a form and a way of being human together that simply has not manifested itself very often. That's, well, that's a great note to end on. Brad Gregory, thank you very much. Oh, really a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And uh, this, was, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.